Hello, welcome to Hirai, the home of modern Welsh politics. Um, you won't recognise my voice as one of the regular team. Um, my name is Sarah Rees, I'm a feminist campaigner, and I want to thank the guys for giving us this opportunity to do a women's takeover of the pod. Um, we're doing this because there has recently been a women's takeover at the Senate. So we've gone one step further, and on top of having a takeover of the Senate itself, We've also come along and cheekily done a takeover of Hiraith at the same time. And I'm joined here today by Evelyn James, who is the Diverse 5050 Campaigns Manager at the Women's Equality Network Wales. Hi. And Liz Silversmith, who is a political commentator specialising in Senate antics and a day job in policy and advocacy. Hello. So we're here today to, first of all, talk through the women's takeover at the Senate. And having been there for the whole day, it was really exciting. And I think an eye-opener to see a true diversity of speakers and participation. It, it felt fantastic. Um, and all of the photos from that day just showed that we need a more diverse Senate daily, not just for one Saturday. And um, Ethan, it'd be really great for you to tell us a little bit about your role how the women's takeover um, came to happen and what were your kind of main points on the day? Thank you very much, Sarah. Yes, absolutely. Women's takeover of the Senate. We belong here. It was fantastic, um, very exciting, as you've said, Sarah, to see so many women from diverse backgrounds, you know, walk into that Senate building. And that, for me, was the point of the whole day. We are just trying to send a message across to all the leaders in representation that true leadership and representation should reflect the diverse population that we have in Wales. And that day was what we showed um, representation to be. And um, it was amazing. So when Wales partnered with Electa, who had done it in Scotland two times now, known as Women Gather. So we belong here was to send a clear message to the women in grassroots com communities to send a message to the women of Wales that you have a place at the decision table. You belong at that decision table. Come and see how it is done at the Senate. Come and experience for yourself what it means to stand in that capacity to speak on behalf of your community. So that was the message of the day. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Liz, how does it feel for you to see that we had an entire women's takeover, not only in the Senate, but in the chamber. I think that's awesome. Um, to be honest, when I first heard of it, I um, literally just heard there was a women's takeover. I hoped it would be on a Tuesday for like first minister's questions. And, you know, only women were allowed to ask questions and Jane Hutt would step in for Drakeford and be like, yeah, let's see, let's see what the women talk about in a proper debate. Give them some legislation to pass. Why not? Just let's have a go, maybe a month. Maybe a bit too far, but yeah, a Saturday with lots of workshops is wonderful and, and probably more appropriate for people who are considering, hoping, wishing they could run for office. But ultimately, we know how difficult it is to run for office full stop, like councillor, community town councillor, you know, very even lowest rung, as it, as it were, entry level sort of representation on councils, not to do it on councils, it's very important, but to then bring that ambition up to be like, no, you belong in the Senate. You don't just belong in the council. You belong at the upper levels. You you belong as cabinet minister. You belong as the first minister. This isn't just for men. And, and even though, yes, the Senate has been great at times for representation, 
I'm not sure how feminist the Senate is today. And a few years ago, I wrote an article about, you know, how feminist is, is the Senate. And, you know, we can have Quiet Rights Tag, or not anymore, but we can, we can have these kinds of projects and we can have great women in, in cabinet positions. But, you know, how feminist are the issues discussed? Uh, how feminist is legislation? How feminist, how much does it support women to truly get into office? And I'll leave you guys to talk about the takeover because I wasn't there. So um, I, you know, I've watched bits of it back on Senate TV and a little plug, you can watch it back on Senate TV. I'm not sure if it's the whole day, but it looks like quite a bit of it. I, I once considered running for council and I actually um, dropped out. It was, it was a by-election in, in my ward next door and then putting up another by-election in my actual ward the following year. And um, I passed the sort of uh, introductory test of the candidate. I got through the candidate selection process um, and the party really wanted me to, to run. This, this is Labour, by the way. And I, I dropped out and ultimately it was because I was actually moving house. I was renting in Cardiff and couldn't afford to buy a house in Cardiff. I wonder how feminist an issue that is. And I didn't want to be one of those councillors that moved out of their ward very quickly after being elected. And also, as it happened, my partner broke his elbow. I had other commitments going on and decided all in all, it wasn't worth the effort. And I do wonder how many other women have been through that same thought process in their heads. I think some of those things you're bringing up, there are really pertinent, aren't they? And you know, for example, there were some people who I think really um, made the day for me and the voices that we heard. Councillor Sarah Picard, she um, gave a great speech about her experiences as one of few elected people with a learning disability in Welsh politics. She should be in the Senate. She shouldn't just be a councillor. Not that it's just a councillor, but it's taking real diversity to that next level, isn't it? We heard from Bablin Mollick, for example, who is the first woman of colour to be Lord Mayor of Cardiff. They were fantastic people on the day. Is there anyone in particular, Evelyn, that you felt really was a voice that you think should be in the Senate permanently? Um, I think it's women all across board, but most especially one of the outstanding things that we did for that panel was having the young voice of Fatma Askoy in that panel. That again is to send a message that all women, young, old, middle age, you know, whatever category, whatever, however you identify yourself, your voice matters. And it comes back right to what Lisa said, Liz. Um, again, it's, it speaks to the barriers. That is exactly why we have, um, we had, we belong here on the day. It's not just enough to tell women stand for elections, like, like we say. It's not just enough for us to say um, you belong at the table, but it is about what are the issues? What are the barriers that women face that deters them from standing for election. And we need to get women the appropriate platform, the appropriate resources, the appropriate support system, you know, to combat yeah. those barriers. But whilst we are also making the effort to step into those roles, that's what um, We Belong Here was about. That's why we had that chamber session where the MSCs, um, the councillors, the youth parliamentarian, and all the women from across parties came together to sort of share their experiences. What are they doing in their positions of power already to make it easier for more women to come in? And then how can we work together as a unit to make it happen? So talking about support, um, you know, those of you watching our video might notice I haven't done my hair today. It's still wet. 
um, Liz, any comment on what's been happening this week about misogyny in politics in Wales? I'm glad you bring it up because I thought yeah. this morning we, should, we cannot not mention this. No, absolutely. <laughs> Andrew R.T. Davis was on GB News with Nigel Farage. I, I only watched it yesterday, finally, and I was like, oh, Nigel Farage is interviewing him. I completely passed me by. But I've heard, I saw on Twitter this morning, some UK Conservatives are not happy that he was on a platform with Nigel Farage, but it's by the by. He said that Ellen Jones, he was talking about her decision to not have GB News broadcast on the Senate TV system. The Senate TV system is not a normal TV system. It doesn't have, you know, Sky. Um, doesn't have all the channels for free, unless uh, it's been a while since since I worked there. But yeah, it's she decided not not to have have it on there. Presumably, she also decided not to have American news channels on there. You know, like Fox News. But Andrew R. T. Davis, as leader of the Welsh Conservatives, kicked off and then made a remark about uh, Nigel Farage. Said we invited her on the show, and she said no. And he said, "Oh, she's probably doing a hair, no doubt." What I found hilarious about this comment is actually the only comment I've heard about female MS's hair is that some of them don't care enough about their hair and makeup. And honestly, that does put, I, I enjoy doing podcasts and radio more than television commentary because I don't have to do my hair and makeup. It's a genuine issue and it seems petty, but actually I will be judged more harshly if I go on BBC six o'clock news and I don't have any hair or makeup done. You know, when I, when I have done TV, I've had family and friends be like, oh, your tights are a bit weird and your hair looks great. And, uh, oh, have you got new eyeshadow on? I'm like, what did you think of what I said though? And yeah. Um, yeah. The, the mere suggestion that an MS would be too vain um, doing her hair to, to not appear on TV. No, she just thinks GB News is below her. And frankly, that's her own personal opinion. She's allowed to say, you know what, I can't be bothered. And what I found particularly interesting was that there were quite a number of Senate members who were happy to speak out strongly, you know, call out misogyny, but um, Ellen can handle herself on that situation quite clearly. And Absolutely. why haven't we got other Senate members calling out when these type of things are happening at a much deeper level or Senate members speaking out on other more pertinent issues that are happening at the moment? Ethan, what's your view on this? It's quite interesting, actually, when I saw... Um one of the MSCs who called out um, that act of misogyny, um, Von Getten. And again, it shows the progress that we are making, that it wasn't another woman or another uh, female MS who actually said, oh, you need to apologize for saying that, that it was Von Getting who just quickly said, you need to apologize for saying that. So we're making progress. We're making people realize that why does it always have to be a comment about a woman's body and how you look or what you should look like or what you should be saying? There must always be something, oh, she rolled her eyes, oh, she didn't roll her eyes, her hair wasn't this and that. Why? Yeah, it's... definitely. So we can't talk about a women's takeover without coming back to our earlier discussion on Senate reform. Evelyn, can you give us a little update on what's happening with Senate, Senate reform in the sense of gender quotas? And, and where that sits in the plans. Absolutely. This is why um, we've strengthened our argument when people say, oh, no, people need to be nominated on the basis of merit. There is no merit in the system when there was no balance in the first place. This is why we needed gender quotas to give women that right of access, especially women who on the ordinary level would not get access to those positions. So for instance, ethnic minority women, it's taken 22 years to have the first woman of color in the Senate. So that alone speaks volumes, voluntary measures don't work. 
we cannot keep appealing to the conscience of people to say, oh, please give women access, oh, create a space for them. We need to have proper legislations in place to be able to ensure that we can encourage gender equality and diversity within the Senate. And that's what gender quotas is about. That's what that reform is about. And it was quite interesting um, um, uh, that the debate um, that just happened yesterday with regards to um, um, the quotas and the reform bill on implementing gender quotas. It's quite interesting that the discussions are progressing, you know, that the Welsh government needs to pull through with their commitment to actually implement gender quotas because it's the only way Honestly, at this point that we can assure and ensure that we have women in those winnable seats. And it's not just down to um, um, the implementation of quotas. It's also brought down to political parties. More proactive measures need to happen. They need to adopt um, diversity strategies that can reflect the diversity of their parties. That is putting women from underrepresented groups in positions that they can win. I think that's the point that came up on the day quite a lot. It was kind of talking about how um, it isn't just a case of making sure that parties are taking action, but we're going to need a lot of women to come forward if we are going to have this. Liz, are you for or against gender quotas? I really hate the argument that women should get their own merits. It's like, yeah, they, it would be great. It would be grand if if, um, if every selection was an open selection and there was no gender bias and there was no inclination to vote more for an authoritative male candidate than yep. female candidate. I mean, I, I always think about this when I remember this study, which stays in my head because I'm a big podcast listener, that male voices are enjoyed more by all people, men and women, than female voices. I find that a fascinating social development that we find basic male voices more calming than higher pitched female voices. And, and there's also those sorts of studies saying uh, most presidents and prime ministers are tall. I mean, Rishi not included, and I say that as a five foot woman, but most most leaders are tall. And that's such a weird thing. But yeah, you, you take people to the voting day. Oh, and hair, no bold men don't get very far in politics, apparently, fascinating. Um, but yeah, tall men with hair, that's, that's considered like the perfect authoritative figure that people trust. Because when you're thinking about political leaders, especially first ministers, prime ministers. You want someone that will take you to war and defend you in war. You want someone that will stand up for the economy and be strong and powerful. And and, and the traits that we associate with strong and powerful versus masculine traits is, is very interesting. But yeah, the whole, um, I'll just say that when the Senate was 50-50 in gender quota, that was because of Labour's all women shortlists. And I won't make any apology for that, it absolutely was. I've helped a bunch of female candidates, friends in the Labour Party run on all women shortlist. And you always, always, always get people going, oh, all women shortlist. Oh, I wanted to run for that one. And I thought that was a nice safe seat that I could go for. I've heard from so many dudes running for Labour office being like, oh, I wanted that safe seat. And I'm like, well, for once they've made it an all women shortlist. So chill. Like, it's just very irritating. It's like, look, this is safe, especially when you have a safe seat that could be Labour for the next 50 years. Like, shoehorn women in there you know <laughs> like shoehorn a woman that's hard to elect but you know is fantastic and i know that's not great democracy shouldn't be based on forcing diverse people into power but that is the only way we've made progress it's the only way that's worked so as far as i'm concerned the ruckus from the other parties about this you know including gender reform quotas and i understand they've got two different bills so that one can be challenged in court and one will hopefully just pass smoothly conservatives still won't support it because they don't agree with more politicians but that's for another podcast I think this the, the upset is coming down to Plyde and Conservatives having to think about, and Lib Dems, of course, 
and greens let's hope some greens get in for the 96 ms's wouldn't that be lovely more diverse people more parties more more plurality i can't say it but you know what i mean more more diverse voices across the senate and different political ideologies too i'd really like to see a wider stretch of political ideologies because at the moment we've got this kind of narrow progressive stance and live yeah. down and labor and then you've got conservatives that seems to take everything more to the right every day but I, yeah, I think the, the upset is applied in conservatives and, and Lib Dems now have to think about things like all women shortlists and gender quotas and how do they actually do it in their selection processes. And it's going to be really fascinating to watch how they do it, if they do it. One thing that actually was a big win for me on um, the Women's Takeover Day was how we had really diverse views in that room, speaking on a stage in front of people, you know, and hugely diverse um, opinions. Yet it was dealt with in a respectful and a supportive manner. I think it's worth mentioning Susie Davies because um, across parties, all different people were really saying how they miss Susie Davies in our politics in Wales and how um, supportive she's been to women at whatever party they're from. One thing I did want to mention is I've been reading um, a book, The Pocket Guide to the Patriarchy, and trigger warning for anyone who's up for reading it it's a great book but i have been shouting that's devolved at it quite a lot but one thing it did say on this particular issue is that um is- issues like reform and 50 50 um, gender balance in politics is quite a white and privileged feminism um, and what do we do about the rest of women and how will that decision impact and, and trickle down to them even it's not that you've got something strong to say on that i i would say let's solve the problem first as there being inequality in leadership, it's glaring. We can all see it. How can you address issues concerning people with lived experiences that you haven't experienced? It takes you to be a person with disability to be able to address the issues that come from that community. How about the health issues that women are facing that's taken years for people to even be aware of it? Why do you think we have that? That's because there was no representation at that decision table for somebody to speak about those issues. How about ethnic minorities? They in there are was still addressing issues of racism in the society, misogyny against women. Why do we have that? This it boils right down to it. Representation. It's not there. It's, it's, it's quite simple in a way, isn't it? <laughs> it's just simple and direct. The argument sometimes is ridiculous. Solve the problem first. Create equal and diverse rep- representation for these people whose yeah. voice are lacking in that decision um, process. And then you can take on mm-hmm. the next step. We are not saying gender quotas is the final and only solution. Of course, there are other barriers, but we can take it one step at a time. Break down these first barriers first. Give people a chance to be at that decision table. And they are not, um, they are not without merit. These women have qualifications. Were you in that room at the Senate? You could hear them speak. You could hear them talk about their issues. You could hear them with different talents and solutions that they can bring to the table. Why are we denying the economy of that opportunity? Look at the all women shortlist. It should tell you the accomplishment of those women who came through that shortlist. One thing I did want to mention before we move on is about activism and There was a workshop on that day on activism and you couldn't deny what was happening right behind the glass of the Senate. There were 3,000 people outside the Senate um, who were speaking out about the situation in Gaza. 
Um, inside, we held a minute silence to remember the lives lost in both Israel and Gaza over the past two weeks. Um, and I did want to mention, because my day job is Oxfam, um, we've had an update on the scale of humanitarian need. More than 5,791 Palestinians, 70% of those women and children, have been killed um, in this situation so far. And what particularly I want to see from our Senate members is them speaking out on this. Who in our Senate has spoken out and called for an immediate ceasefire? Who has called for humanitarian access? Um, and, and I think the other question I pose to both of you is um, if anyone wants to cover Keir Starmer's visit to a mosque in Cardiff last Sunday and how that's been handled. I think... I don't want to go into it too much because I think it's a typical case of a leader piggybacking onto a local visit and being fairly insensitive about the comments and comms around it. I it's it's really I I am absolutely no expert on this situation whatsoever, but I always find it funny when there's international conflict and there's horrible things and humanitarian aid needed desperately, whether it be a natural disaster or a war, or whatever. And then people like have been calling on Keir Starmer to say something and then Mark Draper to say something and then all the leaders need to say something. And then we all, we don't all need to say something. We actually need to listen. And I think Keir says he was there to listen at, at this. And, and the story is he went to a mosque, I think it was in Butte Town and, and wasn't well received. And I think he was giving, trying to give international prime ministry looking messages to a local mosque. Well, I think, I think their issues, are, I think their concerns about it would be quite different from him giving a press conference about the whole situation. That's a very different set of concerns. I don't know what sort of people were there, but I, I imagine the sort of people in Cardiff, Butte Town, perhaps they have relatives, perhaps they are massively concerned about age, perhaps they're not, perhaps they have different issues entirely, but he should have been there to listen, not, not to preach. I think that's a wonderful point and um, yeah when I've in the past knocked doors um, campaigning the most important thing the most valuable thing is to listen and hear from people. Ethan what, what's your view on, on this situation? Um, I think um, my heart um, goes right out to these families um, and the people who are actually facing this. I think um, a lot of people spend so much time commenting and looking for comments and looking for comments here and there to focus on, but that shouldn't be the focus. It's the fact that people are going through absolute terror at this moment, young children, women. And we know, again, when it comes to conflicts, the people who bear the brunt of it, women, children, watch the news, it's happening. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's horrible. So I think just to end on that one, we want to see more of our politicians who are quick to call out misogyny to also call out for ceasefire and peace. Um, Absolutely. I think whilst we're on this topic also, I think th there's a positive element that we can come to. And Evelyn, I think it'd be lovely to hear your story on how you came to Wales. Yeah, um, I always say the, the reason why I ended up where I am right now is because I didn't just want to sit back and 
be part of the problem or complain, oh, the system is horrible, the system is this, the system is that, because guess what? The system will always be horrible and this and that if you don't do something about it. Um, so I came into Wales as an international student, like I said, at Swansea University. And um, you know, you have all of these dreams. So I've got experience in human rights, gender and conflict. So definitely I should find it easy, you know, to integrate. But yeah, that wasn't the case. Um I found it hard. It was horrible. I was pregnant with my baby and I didn't know absolutely what to do. I was helpless. Until this, my very kind professor, um, Professor Nenna, shared this unique opportunity about when. And Catherine Fuchs gave me that chance with Wen Wells. I tell you, she took a leap of faith. She said, I believe in you. I see the passion and I think you have what it takes. And I stepped into this role. And, and I'm blessed that I am right here adding my voice to change the things that we want to see in our society. And, and that's that's all that's really important to me. You know, also how I joined Sarah on, on, on Pregnant and Screwed campaign. It was amazing to talk about my, my, my maternity experience. I went through horror giving birth to my, to my baby girl that I came and I was like, no, I never ever want to experience that again. But it also gave me a reason to speak for women who've gone through it. And I think what's so powerful, Evelyn, is how um, it, it's really powerful of what you've said and you've faced all these different barriers yourself. You've faced extra barriers because you're a black woman. And yet the success that you've come out with, like the huge success of that day of hundreds of women leaving the Senate saying what a fantastic day it was. It was the first time they've been there, you know, just huge props to you. It was fantastic. And um, we're going to move on because we've covered so much in that, but we've got a lot more that we wanted to talk about. And Liz, I wanted to um, talk to you about a story that's coming out about COVID inquiry revelations and what we're seeing is quite differing views over how devolution should work. And Boris Johnson, who was prime minister at the time of COVID, saying that he's against, in principle, having wider conversations with leaders across UK nations. What's your opinion? Yeah, I think, I think so this, this is based off a BBC story. I mean, it was covered in a few outlets, but the ongoing kind of, uh, the, the gift that is all the text messages and the COVID inquiry, so you can see what ministers say uh, not in the public sphere and in private messages to each other as to, as to how to handle things. So we're getting a fantastic glimpse into the discussions that people had over time. Anyone that's worked in politics, so all the juicy stuff happens on the phone or in text. Like you don't put it in an email because you don't want to be FOI'd about it. And you know, that's that's a trick for every lobbyist. But um, yeah, so basically Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, in which, you know, it feels like a long time ago now, we've had two prime ministers since then. Um, but essentially, Boris said it is optically wrong in the first place for the UK Prime Minister to hold regular meetings with devolved First Ministers. I mean, what a comment. Optically wrong. Didn't want to look like a mini EU of four nations. Not the same thing. And uh, didn't want to meet in a federal structure. And what Dominic Cummings said um, more explicitly in a text basically talking about how to very beginning of COVID, how are we going to structure COBRA meetings? Who are we going to invite? Who gets to come to the table, these emergency juicy meetings? And Dominic texted saying, with the devolved administrations on the 
becking phone all the time, either so you can't tell the truth, basically swearing and saying, do not invite them to COBRA for a national pandemic. And, and, and the, the most surprising thing about this is that it's not surprising at all. Anyone that's worked in devolved administrations, and I, I use the word administrations with, with a strong hate of that word, because administration suggests that we are a little council in Wales dishing out some spare change from Westminster. And I honestly think that's how Boris Johnson views us. I think he views Mark Drakeford as, you know, a, a council leader of a particularly large area. and. Um, and do we think that's different with Rishi Sunak? No, and yeah, that's a, that's a very pertinent point. It's not; it hasn't changed. Nothing's nothing's changed in this way, and it does. You know, it's it's not hugely surprising. Your Boris has no respect for Wales or Scotland. Yeah, okay, fine. And Dominic Cummings has no respect for anyone at all. Absolutely fine. Would it be different under Rishi? Doesn't seem like it. He seems slightly more respectful, but only on the face of it. I don't see any more. Um, you know, any more particularly conducive cooperative discussions. Just, just one example I won't get into, so I'll be here all day, but the deposit return scheme was the last policy I saw agreed on a UK-wide basis, and it stuck again. You know why? England changed their mind. They, the brewers and the manufacturers and Coca-Cola and whoever else have been lobbying quite hard on this deposit return scheme. It's, you know, a scheme to bring your bottle back and get, get money back. And it's much like carrier bag charge, a way of making a more circular economy, taking the waste back to the manufacturer, they recycle it you know, we get 510p back on each bowl. It's not a complicated policy, but they're making out like the most complicated thing in the world. I, I always go yeah. back to saying it's like a Corona pop back when I was a kid and you get your 10p. <laughs> yeah, and in Scotland, people people more, you know, remember it more recently and, and it's been more of a thing up there. And Scotland agreed to do this years ago and then England finally caught up and said fine. And then Wales said, oh, we haven't got the civil servants to do it here, but yes, we'd love to go with the UK scheme. And yeah, Julie James has been quite vocal saying, we're gonna take them to task on this. They wanna remove glass from the scheme, so no glass bottles will count. It's quite significant for the pub and brewery industry. A lot of those bottles are glass. Uh, it's a heavy material. It's um, one of the most easy to recycle materials. It's it's quite arbitrary, leaving it out, may even make it more complicated. So yeah, Julie's, you know, we may, and this is because of the Internal Market Act, a, a post-EU bill that, that reinforces that all the decisions come back to UK government, come back to their parliamentary sovereignty, they come back the prime minister because the prime minister is the one that's really in charge and the only question i'd raise before i move on is is will it be different under keir starmer will it be different under labor would it be different under a federal structure would it, does anyone really care does keir starmer really want to do a wales scotland northern ireland act which makes a federal structure because that's what we're facing and it breaks my heart that i voted for keir in, in the leadership election obviously COVID happened and you know recession nearly came close and lots of things happened since then but he basically dropped everything and he started making and in, in during the leadership contest he was making some interesting speeches about federal structure drawing off gordon brown's review um constitutional commission review um was it constitutional convention which which labor first ministers have been calling for for years and years from carwin to mark uh, everyone and then he's gone very quiet on it and the new Labour Party membership card's got Union Jack on it. And he, you know, makes these aside comments, not very clearly, but I've, I've noticed them. He does think that the Prime Minister is in charge. And I think the most symbolic thing is that when there was a big kerfuffle um, over HS2 and the fact it's classed as an England and Wales project has significant implications for our finances. We're owed two billion from that project um, because England England transport projects or any England extra funding, if you like, beyond the norm, you get devolved consequential amounts, very boring formula, but it's a it's a way of giving the money back to Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, say, oh, we're spending this in England, you do what you need to, it's often not restricted in, in, in the devolved nations. Scotland and Northern Ireland got 
got their devolved consequential from HS2. Wales didn't. And, you know, it's happened with air passenger duty. This, you know, they devolved air passenger duty to the different devolved governments so they could decide how to tax flights. And they went, oh, not Wales. No, it's going to compete with Bristol. Mm, I don't think so. It's just this, this weird extra treatment. And Joe Stevens, who's the shadow Welsh secretary, I'm sure she regretted saying this, but was probably told from the top down. She could not guarantee that if Keir Starmer was prime minister next year, that we would get that two billion owned from, owed from HS2. So my question to Keir Starmer would be, in what way would Wales actually be treated differently if you were in charge? And, and it's that, isn't it? I think right now is, you know, we're seeing across the board quite dire straits in Wales when it comes to public finances. Um, and one piece of research actually that I um, noticed came out yesterday from the Women's Budget Group is how women are going to shape the general election and how those decisions are made. And it revealed that 25% of women are undecided on how they'll vote at the next election compared to just 11% of men. Are we sitting up and taking notice of, of that? Um, and Evelyn, do you think from a when Wales perspective that, um, you know, are women decided? Is there more to be done to kind of raise awareness of what those differences will be? And not only that, but how they will um, make a difference here in Wales for people of Wales. Absolutely. Um, um, and we're quite glad that um, recently, um, when Wales has taken on the Women's Budget Group, Paratech was handling that important project. And we're glad that we've not allowed that vision to die because we think even more so now is the time that we need to press on, on issues like that. Because we're talking about finances and the economy that can impoverish women. These are, again, some of the things that keep women in those um, positions, in those places where they can rise above. How the economy works for different genders is, is fascinating. So just to reiterate, it's, um, it's really important to note that the Wales Women's Budget Group won't be disappearing with the sad demise of Quaratec. It is going to be moving into and be um, incubated by the Women's Equality Network Wales. But again, you know, we're looking at a small, small organisation, one part-time staff member, um, and how we've got that role pushing to ensure that decisions that are made on our budget in Wales do reflect um, women's lives. Absolutely. Should we move on to uh, public finances in general, since our, that's our next... Um... I think that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I think we accidentally yeah. segued into into the economy. Good, good for us. We knew what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we've, I, we've mentioned Quaratag, you know, the National Theatre Wales and public cuts there. You know, the third sector in Wales is, in a sense, quite often um, you know, the scrutiny of, of how decisions are made. And we're in dire straits in, in the third sector. And I think that's got to be talked about and not only in in that sector but another that is quite predominantly you know a workforce of women in our public sector and local authorities hmm. it feels like every single thing that isn't essential and when we say essential that's an interesting term what is, what is essential to it to an economy okay. but but you know it's um We've got a couple of stories that we were looking at about, well, there's a, there's a general Welsh story, which I've only read the first paragraph of because I've read plenty of stories like this. NHS budget risky. <laughs> Not sure NHS in Wales will, will be able to exist. Will it still be in the same state next year? Probably worse because we never actually 
there was a lot of chat during the pandemic and during lockdown. I, I'm, you know, I know so many people with COVID. I'm not sure we're out of it, but we're certainly pretending that we're out of it. This has decimated the NHS. It really has. And I, I, I'm not even talking about hospitals and, you know, waiting times. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about staff burnout. I was chatting to some friends recently um, when the ambulances were on strike and I was like, don't have an accident today, guys. You are not going to get seen. I have called an ambulance before, uh, in the last year for a suspected heart attack. I was told to wait about four hours. And as it happened, it wasn't a heart attack, but there were similar symptoms. And it was a terrifying prospect to be like, I can't actually get a bloody ambulance. Good thing I can drive. Because if I needed to, I could drive, um, you know, my friend to, to the hospital. And that, that is an awful situation. But anyway, the, the other public finance story is that Denbyshire bankruptcy is on the cards. And Rebecca Evans, a finance minister, came back a few days later saying, no, it's not. Rebecca is that productive and she's just being you know she's Welsh government finance minister she provides money to, to all councils the revenue support grant and they are keeping it and not even just frozen they they did adjust it by about three three percent increase it's not in line with inflation but they're trying their best they, they, the the Welsh government knows that social care education um you know it's it's through councils that that is where the statutory services are getting your bins picked up these are the things people notice and although cutting libraries, leisure centres, you know, recycling centres, charities, bus subsidies, the theatre, <laughs> quarry tag, uh, putting up council tax. People do notice these things, but mostly the poorest people notice these things. What I worry about is not so much the gender parity, although gender is always a factor, it's the class factor. It's where are these cuts going to hit? They're going to hit the poorest. And, you know, this week, Rishi said he's not going to cap bankers' bonuses. And you're just like, are we only talking about capping, not even cutting? Okay, you don't even want to cap them. What is it, two times the amount they make in a year? Are we really talking about bankers' income when people are choosing between heating and eating still, when goodness knows what's going to happen to energy bills this year? But um, yes, I'll, I'll keep ranting forever if I keep going on. <laughs> no, and I think but there are some really pertinent points that you're making there. And I think you know we've heard from the Welsh Conservatives that... Um, you know, Welsh government are spending money in particular ways that they wouldn't, that they would turn all spending back towards the NHS. Um, but what we're talking about and the points you were making there were around it's it's not just the front line of the NHS, but it's the invisible services behind them. And Evelyn, you'll be able to tell us better, better than anyone. Um, you, as a migrant in Wales, you're working two jobs, one with a charity with the Women's Equality Network, you're working a second job in social care, but you're struggling to get access to housing despite your um, the value that you add to the economy and the skills that you're bringing. Um, and what's it like to work in social care um, knowing the difficulties that we're facing with the budget? Um, and one story, for example, is that um, Swansea Council have spent more than £6 million on agency staff this year, which is 10% higher than the previous year. Um, tell us what it's like to be a social care worker. I mean, um, <laughs> it's horrible to be honest, because if I'm still working those two jobs and I'm still struggling with covering costs, taking care of the bills, being able to take care of my kids and all of that, what does that say about the economy? What does that say about the budget? especially when they classify it as zero contracts. It's not recognized and you can't get anything out of it. You scramble for shifts. 
like we are sent for to jobs in the most ridiculous of places sometimes you drive hours to get to where you're getting to to get paid how much you don't get paid for, for traveling either do you yep you don't get anything for for traveling you, you just get paid the hourly rates and that's it whether you have to travel two hours to get to that place or even for those of us that don't even drive, which is like even more alarming, coupled with the whole breakdown with the transportation system right now. Some people have to go and pay for accommodation, Airbnb accommodation, just to be able to stay for their ships for longer term so they don't have to keep traveling back and forth. That's additional cost wow. for you to be able to do that. And then when you calculate that cost that you've spent, on that alone, getting to, to your job. Then you think about for some of us that have childcare needs as well, mm -hmm. if you had to pay a minder to take care of your kids for you to get to the job, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's just as much as not even working. It makes it 10 times worse. You're lucky to break even. And, and it's a really that, isn't it? Yeah, breaking even is, is a joy, isn't it, sometimes? And you know there are so many interconnected issues but what comes down to the crux of it is that we all are going to need care at some point in our lives. Yet at the same time, how are we as an economy and as a nation valuing that care and that importance? You know, this is really important work. Not everyone can be a carer um, and it's massively important work. Yeah, um, it's just what you've said. It's grossly underpaid, grossly unrecognised, um, the difficulties. I would think that they should spend some more time speaking to the actual people who work those jobs to hear and take on the lived experiences of those um, women or those workers in that sector. Maybe that would give them a little bit of rethink about how they structure the budget. Um, again, that's why we come down to the importance of having voices before you make a decision, before you create that policy. You're not just creating a policy and just think, oh, it's, it's the wider, it's actually people, human beings that you're messing with. So maybe what we want to see when it comes to um, more women standing for politics in Wales, how are we reaching out to different types? Um, I want to see a lot more people who've got that experience of what it is to be in social work, to be in care work, to be an unpaid carer um, and standing for election to really make the difference that these groups of people want to see. So we've got a bittersweet ending to our women's takeover of the right, um, because I wanted to mention that last week, it was the funeral to remember the wonderful Dame Teresa Reese. Terry was embedded in gender mainstreaming and actually brought that into um, EU policymaking. She introduced the part-time masters in women's studies, the first of its kind in Wales. And graduates of that programme actually were some of the first people elected to our Senate. Um, and she was also the uh, researcher that was behind the women adding value to the economy project. And there is so much that Theresa Rees added to our public life here in Wales, and not just on gender, but across the board. And I think my question for you, just to finish on a kind of what's the legacy for Theresa Rees, what would you like to see for women in Wales? If you had a magic wand, what's the change that you would like to see that Terry would look on and go, yes, we've done it? Terry would be very happy if come the next elections, they were women elected and reflective of the society, 
to have that diversity. I tell you, I wish um, for a second that all um, representatives actually did turn on their Senate TV that day to see the diversity in the room and how beautiful it looked. It was such powerful, absolute joy. That's mm. where I want to see Wales. I want mm. Wales to go back on the map as the first nation to have a diverse Senate, to have diversity in leadership. It had 50-50 in 2003. And it's a shame that it has dropped to 43%, but they can do it again. They can be that beacon of light again. We've kind of come full circle, haven't we, talking about, I mean, I, I Dane Terry Reese, for people who don't know, you can you can Google her obituary on The Guardian. I, I didn't know about her work, but when I read it, it makes sense. All, you know, there's a lot of amazing women that, that sort of fed into to that generation of, of policymakers and politicians. Um, because the you know the, the first step to to women becoming politicians the same first step as everyone you put together a campaign team you choose a seat or a position that you would like to go for and you basically make every decision that you can to go towards that so from my end um, as someone that considered running and then decided not to campaign funding uh you know when when someone gets selected to run as an mp or an ms or a councillor they might be that candidate for years you know there's there's been mp candidates selected for some time because we've never, especially since the fixed term parliamentary act disappeared, um, local constituency parties do not know when they will be in elections. You better have your person set up and the earlier you have them set up, the more they can get to know the community, knock on doors, blah, blah, blah. That's not funded. <laughs> I work full time. Totally, totally. Yeah, I don't have children. and I don't yet have, have parents old enough to need proactive care. So I am of that unique position of being a fairly young woman, fairly, um, who has no caring responsibilities, is a full-time supportive job. My employer is even supportive of me running. You know why I don't run kiteboard? It's not easy enough. But it's not just that. It's, it's not just how, how difficult it is. You've yeah. got all those added layers. And so I stood for the Senate with the Women's mm. Equality Party in 2016. 2016, and when the oh, Electoral yeah. Commission were going through expenses, they said, oh, well, we'll have to look at childcare because we're not sure if that's an allowable expense. Oh, childcare, wow. so I could actually do that job of standing for election um, without um, having a baby strapped to me. And it was <laughs> 2016. The other thing I was going to say, one of the things the Senate could do, which they scrapped a few years ago, was bring back their crash. Um, yes, absolutely. I've got a mate who he had a baby not, not long after the crash closed. And he was just like, for goodness sake, I finally have a child and I want to drop my child off at the crash when I go to my you know, MS's office. And he was just like, and it's not there. So now we've got to pay a fortune on childcare. What a difference that would make that if MS is fathers as well as mothers, let's not forget, it's not just a women's issue, fathers should be able to take Absolutely. their to work too. But they can drop off their kid, nice, you know, agreeable 9am, pick them up at five, and that's free. Doesn't come out of your salary, doesn't come out of your pay packet, that is a free service to politicians. And Parliament's got a bloody hairdresser and a post office, I'm sorry, like, we, we do provide these extra services. Politicians get all their meals subsidised because the cafeteria is like subsidised with the taxpayer. Yeah, like this isn't a new conversation. We're just not including women's needs in it. Yeah, the unique thing we shared at We Belong Here Day, Liz, was to show that it's possible to actually provide that service because we had 
free crutch services for the women to actually be able to attend that event. And for those women to feel that power, that confidence to bring their kids, drop them at the crutch and still be part of that day was amazing. Mm. And I was like, so why is it so difficult to have a crutch in the Senate? It shouldn't mm. feel radical, should it? Oh. <laughs> and, and I think just to finish, the other thing that shouldn't be radical, um, when I used to go to give feedback or attend different cross-party groups, um, when I wasn't in the job that I'm in now, um, I did, couldn't afford the childcare, so I used to take my son with me um, when he was a baby because there was no crash. And quite often, you know, he was also helpful in the sense that I could say, why is my son, who is one, two years old, the only man in the room? And I think when we're looking at the women's cross-party group, when we're talking about women's health, all these different issues, it shouldn't just be the women of the Senate in the room, we need to have the first minister. It would be great if he could have come to that and um, women's takeover day and been along. And and I think it's having everyone around the table, just because it's something that is traditionally a women's issue, childcare, whatever it might be. We need all decision makers to pay attention to that. Yeah, it needs to stop being a women's issue, doesn't it? Parenting is not a women's issue. It's the next yep. generation. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you to everyone for listening to this women's takeover of Harith. You can find us on all the social platforms at Harith Pod. Um, we've got X and Twitter. Um, Evelyn, Liz, do you want to plug your... Uh, yeah, I, you can find me on Twitter. I refuse to call it X. Um, at Liz Silversmith, all one word. Uh, Evelyn? Yes, you can definitely, first of all, join When Wells if you haven't. Um, just go online, type Women's Quality Network, um, because, again, it's not about us. It's not about any individual charity. This is a collective, and um, together we can champion that change together. And, of course, you can definitely always find me on there. Once you type When Wells, you find Evelyn James. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Fantastic. Thank you. Um and I'd also like to say a huge thank you to the guys normally behind her right who've given us this chance to have this takeover pod. We hope you enjoy it. We hope you found it really interesting and we'll really appreciate your feedback. If you want to find any more news and the latest on the pod, you can go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. And if, if you are able to do so, please consider supporting the pod for just £3 a month at patreon and forward slash hooray pod and you might see some lovely posts coming your way i've seen some great notebooks and i've been going out to some of those supporters so there's some fab merchandise available and um, thank you so much <laughs>